Tech Fighter Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 533 for the 5th of March, 2017. That would be the Cinco de Marcha. This week, whether your computer is meek and mild-mannered or a screaming powerhouse, it's a good idea to buy the best peripherals you can afford. Adobe's Experience Design Application XD brings designers a way to create websites and screen-based applications that need to perform well on every device from an index card size phone to a giant TV screen. In short circuits, more than half of mobile device users had to reset at least one password in the past two months. Trying to put an end to robocalls, 2.3 billion of them in January alone. And in spare parts, only on the website, the U.S. Department of Justice and police in several other countries have charged 19 people with fraud that cost victims more than $13 million. Someday in the future, you might be able to visit a virtual amusement park in the past. And with phones getting larger, LG has just released some of the smallest and lightest notebook computers. It's surprising how many people who carefully select a computer based on an extensive review of specifications sometimes pair that computer with substandard peripherals. It's false economy. The computer, after all, is just a box filled with electronics that you will probably never touch and may never even see. But you will be looking at the monitor every minute you're in front of the computer. The keyboard will be in constant use unless you have speech recognition software. And consider how many miles you drag that mouse in the course of a year. These are things that allow you to interact with the computer. Technically, in English, the plural of mouse is mice when it refers to the fuzzy little critters that cats like to chase, and mouses when it refers to the pointing device used with computers. I have never been able to come to terms with mouses. It just sounds wrong. So, mice... It is here and in pretty much everything you hear on TechBiter Worldwide. But let's start with keyboards. Microsoft makes an articulated keyboard that has a detached number pad. You can also obtain a redesigned mouse that's intended to keep the user's arm positioned in a more comfortable way. These products are sold under the Sculpt name. I've been using a Fellows articulated keyboard with a Logitech mouse for several years. Ergonomically, there's not much difference between the keyboards, but the Microsoft Sculpt mouse is much more ergonomic than the Logitech mouse. The Sculpt mouse forces the user's hand to rotate nearly 90 degrees to the right, so instead of the palm being horizontal and resting on top of the mouse, it's more like the position you'd use to shake hands with somebody. The usual buttons are included for left and right click, the wheel scrolls as expected, and clicking the wheel can be configured to the user's choice of more than two dozen possible actions. Actually, all the buttons may be configured, and the settings can apply globally or only when specific applications are running. 
In other words, after buying a Sculpt mouse, you may want to take some time to customize it for your exact needs. Semi-hidden on the left side of the mouse is a browser back button. The Logitech mouse had two buttons on the left, browser back and browser forward. I missed that forward button on the Microsoft mouse, but there's also a blue Windows button that opens the start menu. Well, that's cute, but I don't use it. I'm so used to tapping the Windows key on the keyboard that duplicating that feature on the mouse seemed wasteful. I have configured that button to be my browser forward button, although maybe long term I'll swap the back and forward functions around. When it comes to keyboards, nobody has yet made a perfect one-size-fits-all keyboard. Now, I happen to like the articulated or bent keyboards. Some people dislike them as much as I dislike straight keyboards. The science is pretty clear about the fact that articulated keyboards are better for the user's wrists, but they do take a little getting used to. The Sculpt keyboard has many features I like, but Microsoft made what seems to be some dumb decisions. The function keys, for example, F1 through F12, most keyboards, and particularly those in notebook computers, have a key on the keyboard labeled FN for function. That allows the user to switch between the standard function key uses that are expected by most applications and the special functions that control things like screen brightness, audio level, things like that. This is an elegant solution that makes both contexts accessible. The Sculpt keyboard has a switch. Flip it to the left and you get the computer control keys. Flip it to the right and you get the standard function keys. That is not elegant or intelligent design. The arrow keys, up, down, left, and right, are also, in my estimation, badly designed. Left, down, and right are on one row, and up is above the down key. Good design would position these in a more logical arrangement. For me, though, the most annoying decision was the one that placed a little scroll lock key just above the backspace key where it's really easy to press instead of, or in addition to, the backspace. That's bad because scroll lock is useful only in applications like Excel. And I detest the scroll lock function in Excel. I have never intentionally enabled scroll lock when using Excel, and suddenly I found I was enabling it all the time. You'll see a picture on the TechBiter Worldwide website. It shows both of these, both the scroll lock right above the backspace key and that silly little switch over at the right that really should have been a button. The only option that the keyboard manager offers for scroll lock is to display or hide its status on the screen. I just want to make scroll lock go away. Well, actually, that's pretty easy. You can disable or remap annoying keys. So there are two keys that I never use, Caps Lock and Scroll Lock. I had already disabled Caps Lock with a registry edit. Now it was time to do the same for Scroll Lock. I'll explain how, because maybe there are some keys on your keyboard that you'd like to make go away. It's a relatively easy registry edit that works on Windows 7, Windows 8, and Windows 10, and probably other versions too, but it is still a registry edit and errors in the registry can cause problems or even keep the computer from booting. If you decide to change the keyboard mapping, be careful. 
The images you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website and this explanation are for Windows 10. To start, you'll need to open the registry editor. It's called RegEdit, R-E-G-E-D-I-T. Press the Windows key and type the word RegEdit. It'll pop up and then click the Run Command option. Drill down to the Local Machine System Current Control Set Control Keyboard Layout. And make sure you choose Keyboard Layout, not Keyboard Layouts, with an S at the end as a plural. That's not the one you want. You want Keyboard Layout. Once you've selected Keyboard Layout, you may or may not see a key called Scan Code Map, labeled as Registry Binary. On the TechBinder Worldwide website, you'll see that the key is already there. That's because I had already edited the registry to turn off the caps lock. The contents of the key looks really strange. Eight zeros in a space, eight more zeros in a space, zero two followed by six zeros, then zero 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 three AA, a space, and eight more zeros. I'll try to explain what that means, but if you haven't modified any scan codes, the key won't be present, and you'll need to create it. Well, that's pretty easy, too. You need to right-click Keyboard Layout in the left column of the Registry Editor, select New from the Context menu, and then New Binary from the list that appears, type Scan Code Map, and press Enter. You'll now have that new key, and it'll be represented as a zero-length binary value. Its type will be shown as Reg Binary. To edit the value, you double-click Scan Code Map, and an Edit dialog will open. The value will be 0000. That's an address. It's not anything that you can edit. Then you need to fill in the other values. The first 16 characters are all zeros. Eight zeros followed by a space followed by eight more zeros. They are there because Microsoft says they have to be there. Don't mess with them. And if you're creating your own new entry, you'll have to add those eight zeros. The next four bytes specify how many keys you'll be remapping. And by the way, a byte is two digits here, so zero zero is one byte. So eight zeros is four bytes. Because my existing key remaps one key, the value is zero two. And if you wonder why this is represented as zero two followed by six zeros, instead of seven zeros followed by a two, it's because Microsoft decided to use what's called little endian coding instead of big endian coding. You can think of little endian as backwards. And by the way, check out the TechBiter Worldwide website. The images make this a lot more clear. So right here you've no doubt got a question. I have remapped one key, but the value is two. Why? Well, that's because the number of entries is always one more than the number of keys you'll be remapping. In fact, that 2 is there because the final value, which is all zeros, has to be there to tell the operating system there are no more values coming. So, in fact, there are two sets of remap codes. It's just the final one is all zeros. The next component uses two bytes to specify what the key should be mapped to, and two bytes to specify which key is being remapped. The first two bytes, 0000, identify the key being mapped to. Since the value is 0, it means that the key press will be discarded. The final two bytes, 3A00, are in little Indian format, 
and represent the scan code for the key you're mapping. The value 3A is caps lock, so what this means is we are mapping the caps lock key to nothing. If you'd like to find a key's scan code, just use a Google search for the term scan code, or I've got a link to a site that will show you the various scan codes. You can use that if you want. Bytes are represented by hexadecimal digits. These range from hex 00, which is zero decimal, to hex FF, which is 255 decimal. The final two bytes, the ones I mentioned earlier, 0000, 0000, represent a null terminator. In plain English, this just says, we're done here. It's also why you need to specify that number that's one larger than the number of keys being remapped. So to disable the scroll lock key, I just need to make a couple of changes. The third group of numbers changes a 2 to a 3. The fourth group of numbers remains as it was, 0003A00 for caps lock. The fifth group of numbers changes to 00004600, 46 being the scan code for scroll lock. And the new 2-byte sixth group, all zeros, is the new null terminator. Once you've made the changes, double-checked your work, and then triple-checked your double-check, it's time to reboot the computer. When you do that, both caps lock and scroll lock will be disabled. Instead of disabling a key, you might want to map one key to another. Okay, so you're probably ahead of me here. Instead of starting the 4-byte mapping segment with 0000, you start with the little endian representation of the key you want to map the other key to. So let's say that for whatever reason you decide you want to enable caps lock whenever you press the scroll lock key. Well, first you'd want to disable the normal scroll lock function, and then assign scroll lock to caps lock. You'll see an example of that on the TechBiter Worldwide website. And whether you decide to modify the keyboard is up to you, as is the quality of the keyboard, the mouse, and the screen. And shouldn't you really have two screens instead of just one? But if there's one thing I know, it's this. You will never regret spending a little extra to buy high-quality peripherals for your computer. User experience design has become a big thing in the past few years. You might think this is a topic just for website designers, and largely it is, but it's also a topic for anybody who designs anything that will be used by people. It's not exactly a new concept. Wikipedia traces experience design back to the 1940s. The field of user experience design is a conceptual design discipline. It has its roots in human factors and ergonomics, the entry says, a field that since the late 1940s has focused on the interaction between human users, machines, and the contextual environments to design systems that address the user's experience. With the proliferation of workplace computers in the early 1990s, user experience started to become a concern for designers. It was Donald Norman, a user experience architect, who coined the term user experience and brought it to a wider audience. That's what Wikipedia has to say about it. Adobe is heavily involved. The XD, or Experience Design application, continues to expand and improve in beta mode. It is not intended to deal with designs for kitchens or cars, of course, 
but to provide a way to design, prototype, and share layouts for websites and mobile apps. Originally available only on Macs, XD can now be used on Windows systems, and anybody who's a Creative Cloud user already has access to it. Late in February, a new version was pushed out to users. The primary goal is to give designers the ability to create a working prototype of screen-based applications. For the most part, that means websites, but websites must be usable on devices with screens as small as an index card and as large as a television screen and everything in between. And devices with screens can run applications, so XD could potentially cover a lot of disparate use cases. Updates are released monthly, and Adobe solicits feedback and recommendation via its online forms. The new features in the current beta include several changes that bring the XD beta on Windows 10 closer to what's available on the Mac. Four primary changes, pinned comments. Stakeholders can now pin comments to a specific section on an artboard in a shared prototype. This is available for both Mac and Windows initiated prototypes. Scrollable artboards have come to Windows 10. Designers can scroll through long artboards in the preview window or in a shared prototype to show the full content of their designs. Blur effects have come to Windows 10. Blur a specific object or an entire background to allow you to change the focal point of the design. And SVG export on Windows 10. Users are able to export their designs as SVG files. When users export to SVG, they can choose to export with embedded or linked images. So maybe you're wondering what SVG is. Well, it's an initialism for scalable vector graphics. SVG images will eventually replace many of the graphics that are currently used on websites. All major modern web browsers already have SVG rendering support built in. Two primary classifications of image files exist right now, vector and raster, or bitmap files. Vector images, such as SVG, remain sharp when scaled to any size. Raster images become unsharp and jagged when they're enlarged. This becomes very important because new devices have extremely high-resolution screens. Several features available on the Mac haven't yet come to the Windows version, but they are being developed. These include masking and Boolean operations, linear gradients, text style enhancements, the zoom tool, layers and symbols, the ability to record video, preview for mobile devices, and the ability to import a PDF document. Windows 10 users will find that pen and touch features are supported in the property inspector, in the left side toolbar menu, and in the application's frame. But the center canvas cannot yet be handled with touch. Unfortunately, XD documents can be shared with both Mac and Windows users, but not always with complete success if the document contains features supported by one platform but not yet enabled in the other. For example, if a document from a Mac contains a gradient and the user decides on a Windows machine to try a solid color instead, well, you won't be able to change it back to a gradient while it's on the Windows machine. But after all, this is beta software at this point. Because experience design is a new concept for a lot of people, the Adobe XD application starts by offering a tutorial. That's good. Although the application is easy to use, the concepts do take a little getting used to. The Windows version is available only for Windows 10 systems because Adobe wants to, as they put it, leverage the latest touch-enabled hardware, 
deliver the highest performance possible, and be available to the next generation of Windows-based devices. Now that makes sense because most portable devices are touch-enabled, and attempting to develop something for a touch-enabled device on a device that doesn't support touch makes no sense. In fact, XD requires at least the Windows 10 Anniversary Update Edition. Increasingly, new applications don't require users to save their work. XD is like that. If you close a document without explicitly saving it, and then think, oh, wait, well, the document will still be there the next time you open XD. It'll be in the Recent Files dialog. So if you develop websites or apps, particularly if those need to be accessible on devices with differing screen sizes, Adobe XD would be a real good application to take a look at right now, even though it's still in beta. In short circuits, what's more fun than resetting a password? Well, I can think of any number of things that are more fun. But more than half of mobile device users, according to a survey, forgot a password in the past two months and had to reset it. The survey was sponsored by Keeper Security, a password management system provider. The study found that nearly 60% of mobile device users have had to reset passwords in the past two months. Some respondents said they had written down their passwords, which, by the way, is not a good thing to do, and others just tried to memorize them. The survey confirmed that another bad practice is still being used despite nearly continuous warnings. 87% of mobile device users between the ages of 18 and 30 reuse passwords across multiple websites and applications. That is dangerous because thieves test a stolen password against multiple accounts, including banking, retail, social media, email, and healthcare websites. One stolen password could give a crook access to a person's entire digital life. The survey also provides some other interesting insights into mobile security. Nearly half, that is 46% of respondents, think their phone is the least secure device they own, yet 41% use their phone for sensitive applications such as banking and health care. Age and income correlate to the level of security on a phone. Nearly half of those over 45 don't password protect their phones, while only a quarter of those under 45 don't secure their phones. The correlation is weaker based on income, 34% of those making under $75,000 annually don't password protect their phone. That compares to 25% of those making $75,000 or more. So apparently the most secure phones would be those belonging to younger people who make a lot of money. Few people are worried about social media security, but then three-quarters of those users connect their social media profiles to other websites and applications using features like login with Facebook. Keeper Security is one of several companies that provide applications designed to protect passwords. If you need more information, see the company's website. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Some days it feels like I receive every spam phone call made in the nation. 
Figures for January show that at least 2.3 billion robocalls were made. The volume is down a little. The numbers are from Umail, a cloud-based telecommunications service that provides an automated virtual receptionist that replaces the subscriber's voicemail on Apple, Android, and Windows phones. Not, however, unfortunately, for landlines. The company says Americans received an estimated 2.3 billion robocalls in January, a 3% decrease over the total calls received in December, but a slight increase over the same month last year. Umail bases the estimates on its own robocall index, which identifies the worst robocalling hotspots across the country by area code. January marked the fifth straight month that the nation's robocall volume has fallen slightly month over month. The country's monthly robocalling total has dropped about 14% over the past half year. That might be an indication, the company says, that robocalling is stabilizing due to growing consumer backlash. Umail's service for mobile phones identifies automatically dialed calls, blocks them by playing an out-of-service message, and then aggregates that calling data to create the Umail robocall index. Atlanta topped the Umail 50 most robocalled cities in America list for the 14th straight month. Wouldn't you just love to live in Atlanta? They received nearly 101 million calls in January. In addition, three Atlanta area codes ranked in the 20 most robocalled area codes for January. Atlanta area code 404 topped the list with 47.5 million calls. Three Houston area codes are close behind, and Texas received the most robocalls of any state for the eighth straight month. Where are all these calls coming from? Dallas unseated Los Angeles to become America's most prolific robocalling city in January, with just under 65 million calls made, followed by 60 million calls from Los Angeles and about 50 million each from Chicago and Houston. Debt collectors made the largest number of robocalls, the company says that one national credit card company has continued to dominate the nation's most active robocalling phone number for 17 consecutive months. That one phone number has placed roughly 466 million calls, including 20 million just in January. For more information about the Umail Robocall Index or to view the latest report, Check it out on the Robocall Index website. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. And also on the TechBiter Worldwide website, and only on the TechBiter Worldwide website, spare parts, no robocalls involved. This week, the U.S. Department of Justice and police in several other countries have charged 19 people with fraud that cost victims more than $13 million. Someday in the future, you might be able to visit a virtual amusement park in the past. And with phones getting larger, LG has just released some of the smallest and lightest notebook computers. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.